Welcome to the Talking Stack Season 3, where your panelists David Robb, Anand Talker, Chithrayer, and the occasional special guest catch you up on the most impactful MarTech concepts, trends, and perspectives. Hey marketers, welcome back to Season 3 of the Talking Stack. We've now done 64 episodes of the show since we began about two years ago, covering everything that's current, news concepts, mergers, acquisitions, new launches, all the stuff that we felt was significant to us as users or vendors of MarTech. And also we've interviewed some great guests along the way, over 40 CXOs from both the vendor and marketer side. So I am delighted to say that thanks to your support, we are now going into season three. So thank you for listening, following, subscribing, and commenting. Please continue to do that to show that you care, and we'll stay on air. In Season 3, David Raab and Anand Thakur join me once again, and we are making a few changes in the format that we think uh, will help our listeners. Instead of four episodes a month, we are going to do three one every 10 days or so. And we are going to do about two episodes that are all about uh, current happenings, trends, reports, surveys, stuff that you absolutely need to know about when it comes to being on top of all that smartech. And then we'll have one guest, uh, one episode where we have a guest on uh, each month. And we're hoping this season to have a lot more guests from the marketing and practitioner side. So people who have MarTech in their title, who use the MarTech that's out there, who plan and invest in the MarTech that they have and build out and keep their stacks rational as they go along. So stay tuned and do follow or subscribe to get alerted about new episodes on time. So today, our 65th episode and the first season of uh, first of season three, we're getting right down to business. We talk about the growth of data-driven marketing led by what's increasingly being called first-party data tech. You may have heard this term. You may have read about it. So today we're going to help deconstruct it. We're hearing a lot of labels like people-based marketing tech, experience clouds, marketing clouds, omni-channel marketing platforms, and of course some of those older labels like data integration, identity resolution, and of course CDPs of all hues from data CDPs to analytics, campaign and orchestration and what have you. So we'll start by talking about what all these mean and why the way we label them might matter. And then we'll also talk a little bit more in detail about the CDP industry based on um, the CDP Institute's latest half-yearly report. We have David here, of course, who will help us unpack some of what those trends around acquisitions and funding in the CDP space mean to you as you make decisions around your data-powered customer experience strategy, including a little bit of time spent on what Salesforce's acquisition of Evergage might mean to those of you who are Salesforce customers and users. So David, Anand, welcome back to Season 3. Thanks for sticking by us through all of these many episodes. For today, let's start by talking about the way uh, the data-driven marketing conversation is evolving. With this narrative around first-party data tech as we're hearing it now, David, let's start with you. You know, data-driven marketing, well, as you say, it's, the meaning of it has changed over time, and, and vendors do sort of tend to adapt on their system, whatever label is, you know, the label du jour, you know, because it's easier to change the label than it is to change the system, right? So there, there's a certain amount of that, that that's going on. I think that underneath that, the, the fundamental change that you're seeing is, as you say, from just using data for analytics, kind of decide what to do, to actually using data about individual customers as you're interacting with those customers to tailor the experience directly to them. And that is a relatively new thing. You really couldn't do it until we had interactive systems where you knew who you were talking to, when you were talking to them, 
And that's what makes identity resolution so important, because obviously identity resolution is precisely what allows you to know in real time as you're talking who you're talking to. So it is a very, very hot area. The thing that is probably changing the dynamic within that area is, of course, cookies and, and the you know imminent demise of cookies, which makes it much harder for advertisers, at least, to know who they're talking to, because that's what they were relying on third-party cookies to do. You know, when you're talking about your own communications, your first-party data, when someone who you already know is on your website and they've logged in, or you've, uh, you know, used some other technique to identify their device or whatever, then you're not so relying on cookies, but you still have that ability to know, well, okay, here's this person, I have a history of them, which might be in my CDP or wherever it resides, you know, so I understand what they've done and I maybe understand other information about them from other sources. So now I can really tailor that interaction to their needs. In addition to observing what they're doing during the current interaction, which, you know, on a website or on a call center situation, and, and then further, you know, taking that data and all very, very much in real time, reacting to that and adjusting what's, go what's going on. So that's a a lot to do, you know, in milliseconds, uh, but that's where the technology is pushing us. So the systems that can do that uh, are systems that are very sophisticated and are possibly adaptions of systems that were developed in a sort of a, you know, more elegant, slower age, slower paced age than the one that we live in now. Uh, but they do have to make some changes. They can't just take the old technology and slap a new label on it and be legitimate players in the industry. But do you think Merkel is onto something when they say they want to be leaders in the first party data tech space? I mean, do all these solutions then come really under that umbrella, including CDPs and identity resolution, omni-channel marketing platforms, experience clouds, whatever? Well, all right. So what's pushing this notion of you know being a leader in first party data is, again, the concern about the death of third party data, which is somewhat exaggerated, but definitely an issue, right? So people are saying, well, if third party data goes away, what are we left with? We're left with first-party data, and we're also left with second-party data, which is a whole other discussion. Uh, so there are a lot of companies that are saying, well, you know, I, yeah, I've always had this first-party data, but I've kind of just used it a little bit. But now it becomes more important kind of by default because I have less third-party data. So let me really focus on that. And a lot of publishers, for example, who gather first-party data, what's first-party to the publisher, now are trying to find ways to utilize that, not necessarily share it, because the privacy rules make it much harder to share, but certainly to make it available to advertisers, even if they don't know who they're talking to, to understand, well, the publisher knows exactly who I'm talking to, so I'm going to tell the publisher who I want to talk to or what kind of people, what segments I want to talk to, and then it'll be up to the publisher to actually find those people using their first-party data. So that's a lot of what's going on. We see that in all, all kinds of areas, any place where someone has an audience that they own, where they're trying to sell access or monetize that audience, that's where a lot of this first party data uh, leadership comes in that Merkel's talking about. Remember, Merkel's owned by an ad agency. Mm -hmm. Do you also see that maybe this is the reason why there will be more uh, movement in the space in terms of more sophisticated, broader platforms? and fewer, fewer point solutions because that data sharing capacity is going to go away. And the, the need to be able to have that data owned by the brand, uh, you know, through its entire journey or as much of that journey as possible means you need to have a system that can, you know, take that from soup to nuts. Do you see something along those lines, which is where I kind of feel like my head's at with a lot of the movement that we've seen this year and 
certainly as a result of last year. No, I think you're right. Again, as third-party data becomes less available, brands are more motivated to make better use of their first-party data. So that does force them to do things like integrate across systems, uh, where you know before it just wasn't that much pressure. It wasn't you know, it wasn't as important to do it. So I think we will see brands that, that collect all these different pools of first-party data that have hitherto been separate, saying, "Well, wait a minute. You know, we really do need to pull these together." so that we can get the value from them and, and utilize it. So, yeah, we, we, that's definitely a good part of what's going on, and, and that applies, again, both to, um, you know, brands that are brands as opposed to brands that are publishers whose, you know, job has always been audience aggregation. But, again, you go and sell a lot of publishers, and, you know, their audiences are separate, too, from their different properties, and they also have a much greater need to, to pull that together so they can sell a unified audience. So we definitely see that happening, too. Yeah, I've heard these conversations revolved around this and the concern behind it, uh, certainly from a trust perspective, but also, uh, you know, uh, being fined and certainly the, the bad negative press as a result of that, the security and liabilities related to these things, especially when breaches occur. Um, I've, I've heard collectively, or not collectively, but I've heard from a number of vendors who are yanking lots of integrations with other, you know, potential solutions or even curtailing APIs uh, to have greater scrutiny. Consent rules under CCPA in particular, but also GDPR, you know, you know, pretty rigorous. And the vast majority of current consent approaches really don't fit the requirements. So there is a much, much bigger concern about actually having data that's that is legitimately usable. And, you know, big companies who are the ones who are going to get sued uh, are very are being increasingly careful about pulling away from sources where they don't really know how that data has been acquired and if it's valid. So that's, that's probably going to be a huge, huge change and really have a sort of a, a slow-moving impact on third-party data, you know, more so than cookies. And cookie, oh, yeah, cookies go away. We know we're in trouble. Well, yeah, but what people are doing is, is they're kind of substituting in some ways consent for cookies, but that consent then in turn comes under examination of, well, is it really valid consent? And, of course, you know, if you do it right, consent is for specific purposes and it gets real complicated. So companies are going to be much more wary about taking data that, that has been claimed to be consented, but they don't really know for sure it's been consented. That's going to have a huge impact. It's going to kind of roll out over time. Enjoying the show so far? Then subscribe or follow us and never miss an episode. Go to martechadvisor.com slash talkingstack for show notes, resources, transcripts, and sponsorship information. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, and we thank you for your continued support. Now, back to the show. But wouldn't that make the first-party data of publishers all the more attractive then to advertisers because if I'm a publisher, say, a, a newspaper that has a good amount of traffic and uh, I have, you know, got the consent I need for people who consume my content, etc., then, uh, you know, I may be the advertiser's third-party data, but I'm the publisher's first-party data, right, and I've been acquired the right way. And so while vendors might become more and more irrelevant or, uh, you know, not as trusted a source, Publishers, on the other hand, will become increasingly more powerful in this whole uh, setup. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's the whole walled garden problem, right? There was just a headline I saw the other day about lots of new walled gardens uh, popping up, little, little tiny walled gardens, maybe they're, you know. Um, 
as they any publisher gardens. Cre- cre- creates their own little wall, walled garden, um, garden, gardenettes or whatever the little, whatever a small garden is. Um, mini gardens. Pl- mini gardens, plot, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, that, and that's what they do. But, of course, advertisers don't want to have to go out and make 100 different buys, right? They want to. That was whole, the whole beauty of programmatic to begin with. Exactly. Have these exactly. big exchanges. I just have one one place to go. So now what we're seeing is we're beginning to see these sort of marketplaces or consortia, whatever you want to call them, co-ops, where the different publishers can contribute their data in a privacy-safe way, which basically means you don't really expose the PII, but you expose attributes and say, well, you know, okay, I want to buy people who meet these criteria. Now the publisher will go out use their first-party data to, to then serve ads to those people without exposing their identities to the advertisers directly. So that's kind of where we see things going. And, and that's, again, uh, a, a big change. It'll take some infrastructure to get that in place, to put those kinds of marketplaces and co-ops in place. But we think that's going to happen, and, and hopefully that uh, presents enough scale that it's a viable competitor to, to you know buying from Facebook and Google and, you know, the, the traditional walled gardens if, uh, mm. who, who have been so dominant. So, you know, some chinks in the gardens and all that. So those walls are crumbling along with the cookies, and maybe there's a gingerbread house that combines the two. I don't know. You and and when, when I can see the relevance of a data exchange in that case, and that will continue to remain for programmatic, but I'm wondering then if uh, CDPs will take the place of DMPs, really, because every publisher will just have their own CDP that sorts out their data, anonymizes it, and they can use it. Um, you know, they'll probably, CDPs will start needing to have anonymization features as well, and then you can just use that data and send it to an exchange. Well, remember, DMPs are built on cookies, so as cookies crumbles, DMP. DMPs crumble as well. All those little fragments on the ground will probably get pecked at by the birds who are the CDPs <laughs> in this metaphor that I'm developing as we speak, and maybe there are dragons like frying the <laughs> cookie crumbs or something. We, we can work on this uh, offline, I think. But yeah, in, in general, we, we see a lot of concern among the DMP vendors about losing business and, and, and a lot of interest in people combining CDPs with DMP functionality. There's some technical issues because they're kind of built differently, so you can't just use a CDP for what a DMP does, but um, it's possible, and we are seeing some cases now where people are finding ways to supplement their CDP architecture with a more real-time architecture uh, that, that's more suited to the, the very, very quick response requirements of a DMP. So, Yeah, I know we live in a cloud-based world, uh, where everything seems to be integrated, but having uh, some segregation, some separation for auditing purposes, for uh, controls, right? Sort of like um, you know, uh, you know, having a, a monitored barrier to ensure you know there's the integrity of the data and then the purpose of that data. You know, for for the practitioners out there, if you're trying to figure this out, I wouldn't worry about trying to put everything in one piggy bank. Um, sometimes having different, you know, different banks to have different data for different purposes is not such a bad thing as long as you have, you know, for the, for the reasons of liability and appropriate controls uh, and security measures that are, you know, increasingly becoming important as well. That's right, that there are, again, all these uh, auditing control issues and keeping trails of where the data came from and, Again, getting back to consent and how it was used, again, a, lot, a lot of new legal requirements around that. So the systems have to become way more rigorous than they've been uh, to, to meet those needs.
Since David spoke so unbiasedly about CDPs possibly taking over what DMPs do, let's talk a little bit more about CDPs. It is a hugely growing space. Your latest industry report just came out, and Anand and I, uh, you know, have a lot of questions around what's in the report. Um, I'm sure our listeners would rather, you know, they, they would obviously no doubt want to download the report and see for themselves all the details that are in there, and the links to the report will be in the show notes and transcript as well. But today, I personally wanted to pull out two aspects of what's in this report one is uh, you know let's talk a little bit let's do a recap of all the acquisitions of and by cdps and what they indicate and two i wanted to talk about the overall growth pattern of the space uh, you know between the different kind of vendors cdp vendors that we have today the rates that they're growing and why that might be why some kind of cdps are growing faster than the others uh, etc so um to start with, you know, let me do a quick recap for our listeners about the big acquisitions that happened in 2019. There was, uh, you know, the, the MasterCard acquisition of Session M. Equifax acquired Datalicious. Dun & Bradstreet acquired Lattice Engines. Akia acquired Agile One. Uh, Cabbage, which was at FinTech Company for Small Businesses, acquired Radius. Anaplan acquired Mintigo. Snowflake acquired Stride. And... Uh, Zeta Global acquired Ignition One. So lots of, uh, you know, at least eight that I can list out and show that there may be others that, you know, were acquisitions of different sort. Before we talk about the acquisitions made by CDPs, let's talk about these acquisitions of CDPs. We see a mix here of like big companies that have bought CDPs obviously to improve because they have such a huge volume of customers. Um, it makes sense for them, I suppose, to invest. So I'd like to understand better about that. And then there's this other kind of sort of tech company that's acquired. So I don't know, what would Anna plan do with a Mintigo, for example? In fact, in your report, they are almost shown as business, uh, CDPs that have gone out of business. Radius, Mintigo, Pride, Ignition One. So, yeah, I'd love to hear why why you, uh, you know, separated them out like that. Well, they're separated out because th those other ones uh, – are not being offered anymore as products. Okay, so you can't buy Radius today or Mintigo or Stride. They were simply the assets were purchased by the company. Ignition One kind of in between. It was an asset uh, sale, but uh, Zeta sort of kind of is still selling the product maybe or they're selling a new product based on it um, as opposed to the other acquisitions, you know, Session M and uh, by MasterCard and, and Agile One. Um, and, and Lattice, which are definitely still being sold as products. So, so it's a pretty fundamental difference. One is really kind of going out of business. Um, you know, they may end up with some of the functionality within a Cabbage or an Anaplan or a Snow, well, Snowflake is a database company. Um, but it, it's no, you can't buy those for products anymore. So that, that's, you know, that's an exit of sort and a, a true asset acquisition. Uh, whereas Session M presumably will be used by MasterCard as a product, more as a loyalty system probably than a CDP, but a little bit of both as something that their clients, their merchants, the MasterCard merchants, uh, can purchase as an as a added service uh, from MasterCard. So, you know, what those things indicate is, you know, the beginning of a consolidation, a bit of a sorting out of the industry. Some of the guys who really haven't made it just are going to, you know, cut their losses and sell their assets and, and be done with it. Uh, the other companies like a MasterCard or Dun & Bradstreet or an Acquia uh, who kind of want to have this as a service will go out and buy a suitable product rather than building their own because, of course, it's not that easy to build a CDP. 
Um, and, you know, along the line you haven't mentioned, but a lot of funding also happened uh, just in the last six months of companies that were kind of bulking up, basically, to say, you know, we really need to build up our war chest so we can kind of make a run at the top of the market. It was very interesting to me when I looked at who was doing the deals that, you know, only one of the 11 or so deals, uh, forgetting about the asset sales, was a top five vendor. Uh, you know, it wasn't like the first rank guys. Most of them were already done big fundings previously. It was the guys who were like just in that second tier and the, you know, you know, num number, you know, 10 to number 30 roughly in the industry out of 100 who were so all of a sudden kind of saying, you know what, wait, either we're going to grow big or we're going to sell to somebody else or we're just going to, you know, so they kind of had those two choices. So some of them sold and some of them, uh, you know, took on some additional funding to sort of make a run at the top because, we know that the market right now is still very, very fluid. You know, a lot of sort of mid-tier vendors, no one vendor has any sort of a remotely dominant market share. Um, but, you know, certainly as Salesforce and Adobe and Oracle uh, and Microsoft enter the market, uh, you know, there's going to be some, some change and, and some pressure on those guys. And there's not going to be 100 CDP vendors in three years. You know, it'll take a little while. But definitely the number of true, certainly independent vendors who primarily sell CDP as opposed to companies who have a CDP as part of a larger suite, uh, the number of independent standalone CDPs, you know, for sure is just going to have to come down. Uh, so these guys are saying, well, you know, we're, we're going to try to get to be big enough to be among the survivors. What do you make of that most recent acquisition of Evergage by Salesforce? What what message do you think they are sending to their customers? And I'm sure many of our listeners are Salesforce customers about what they can expect in terms of a more seamless data management to data activation capability with CRM somewhere in the middle in there. See, they were very clear in their messaging that the Evergage was not really a CDP acquisition from their perspective. Evergage uh, is one of those companies that really is more of a personalization and interaction management tool that built up the capability to qualify as a CDP because if you're going to do proper personalization interaction management, you have, have to have all the data assembled. So like many companies in that space, they kind of backed into being a CDP because they needed it just to kind of do what they needed to do. And to be a CDP, you have to meet some other criteria, like making that data available to other systems, which they had done. But still, their focus was really that. And what Salesforce bought them for was for that personalization, for that real-time interaction management. Salesforce already was selling something called Interaction Suite, which, although everybody was not really supposed to admit it, was, was a licensed version of a product called Thunderhead. Uh, and Thunderhead guys weren't allowed to say that, and Salesforce never said it, but in fact, that was the case. But it was weird, because Salesforce doesn't usually white label somebody else's product. Uh, and so what this is essentially is Salesforce saying, well, okay, we found there is indeed demand for this real-time interaction management thing. I don't think Thunderhead wanted to sell, although that's just speculation on my part. Um, so they went out and they bought something else, and not that they're this, you know, not that they are two identical products, but it serves, fills the same niche uh, as the old interaction suite. And indeed, it seems, if I understood Salesforce's intent correctly, they may keep the name and just sort of, you know, substitute Evergage in, in, instead of Thunderhead uh, in, in future deals. So although Evergage was a CDP, and we certainly look at it as, uh, you know, a CDP acquisition. That was not really the significance of that deal for Salesforce. 
everybody's ro- creating a more robust customer experience play. And we're not talking about just, you know, the engagement of the customer at the, um, at the marketing level or even the acquisition of the customer, but we're also talking about the support of the customers, creating advocates of customers. And I think this is just a, this is this, this, I agree with David that this is definitely was not, I mean, they were very clear about this. Um, but I think we're going to start to see a lot of customer experience type of acquisitions, which cross the entire organization or are in other parts of the organization that work in alignment with marketing in some particular capacity or the other. I think it's the customer experience conversation that this really does speak to, even though it's not front and center in the press releases that were announced. Yeah, no, I mean, again, they had interaction suite, so it wasn't exactly a gap because they had kind of plugged that in, but it wasn't their product. So, but it, yeah. it's def- definitely something that they hugely need. So they wanted to own it. You know, it was interesting as Salesforce usually will buy sort of category leaders, big companies, and that's why you got, you know, spend billions of dollars for a mule soft or, or something like that. So this was a much smaller deal. You have no idea what the price was, but um, you know, just given the size of the company and again, given the fragmented state of the CDP market, they did not have a dominant market share or anything close. So this was much more of a pure technology acquisition on their point, which, uh, you know, just, just the admission that this was something they really desperately needed to do and they wanted to own it. They didn't want to have to sell somebody else's third-party product. Uh, so, you know, it, it's them responding to the market and, and kind of implicitly admitting that there was a gap. Of course, they never admit that there's a gap until after they fill it. But now that's the last one. Now there's no more gaps, right? So Salesforce is a CRM, right? So what do you think it's going to be called in 2023? You know, CRM is such an interesting term nowadays. Uh, it just has become this total catch-all for anything that stores customer data. You know, back in the day, CRM made, meant something fairly specific, and we, you know, originally it was sales automation, and they had in-service automation. If you look at Salesforce's history, that's exactly what they did. And then marketing was always sort of the third, rather weak leg of the stool. Um, and but it, all those were still sort of interaction systems that dealt directly with the customers. But now CRM just Half the time means anything with my customer data in it, um, and, and, and the other half the time it means something very more that specific original definition. So people get really confused with the term CRM, but that's just you know nature of the industry. I mean, a lot of people have CRM systems or you know Salesforce's, Oracle's, SAP's as their core you know operating engine. Uh, and things are being integrated into that. So it's a core business operation, which, you know, certainly I foresaw for a long time that that was going to happen just because of the nature of the type of data that's customer-centric and a brand going customer-centric, meaning if you wanted to really connect all those journeys and experiences that CRM is going to be. What it's going to be labeled, I don't even want to venture to guess. I, I'm comfortable with it called being called CRM. It's almost like full circle because actually CRM – at one point was kind of labeled, and Davey, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was literally for the customer support side of things. Um, and then uh, Salesforce certainly, mag- I don't know who changed the term and the meaning, but Salesforce certainly magnified it to sales automation. Labels, they're just labels, but people do have to get some mental picture of the scope of the different systems exactly. that are involved. And, and, that, and, and they have to just you know, understand, well, what is it that I need? And more to the point today, you know, they all have to be connected back to our earlier discussion about first-party data. So is my CRM system going to encompass my web 
content management, not website personalization. Again, that's why Salesforce goes out and buys EverGage because they no, no, that web, that real time interaction mm -hmm. management, which is which goes out through the CMS, that, that's really quite di quite different from CRM. Really, very little overlap in anyone's mind between that and CRM. So, you know, don't get too hung up on the labels, but don't be too. Uh, too loose with the labels either. Don't, don't you know? Just loosely say, ah, anything with customer data is CRM. Well, even though I just said that like two minutes ago, but you know, it's it's dangerous uh, to to listen to me, which everybody knows. The reason that I'm interested in how the labels will play out is that I think that Martech vendors are trying to put marketer-friendly labels to the tech now. I mean, to help marketers very easily understand what the problem, uh, what problem this solution is going to address. So less technical sounding it is, the better, I think. For example, Salesforce, you know, specifically in the case of Salesforce, them calling out the new capability with Evergage as real-time personalization, I think is helpful and easy for me as a marketer to understand what it's going to do for me. Again, the marketers need to have a pretty clear mental picture of sort of what are the big components of this architecture I have. I need, I need a, a, a unified customer data store. I need a CDP. I need some sort of an orchestration engine, which is really what, you know, that, that's going to do my personalization one-to-one, real-time, and that, that's kind of what an Evergage does. I need my outbound channel engine. I need my web CMS. I need my DMP for advertising. I need my email engine for email. I need my mobile app systems for mobile apps. I need my uh, call center system for my, for my customer service. Those are all delivery engines that are specific channels that those other systems kind of should be feeding into. In the report, we read that the industry has seen a long-term shift away from data and analytics CDPs towards campaign and delivery CDPs. Why do you think that is? And I think that is, in my head, I think that's related to what we just spoke about because marketers just find it easier to wrap their head around buying a system that does all the things that a data CDP does and an analytics CDP does, but in, in you know is addressing their final pain point. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, there's, there's a certain um, division in the market between mid-tier companies who are the ones who really focus on buying these campaign-type CDPs because they want one system. They don't want to have the integration costs of connecting a lot of different pieces, and they're willing maybe to swap out their current campaign engine for a new campaign engine, um, as opposed to the big enterprises where those big campaign engines are you know, very well embedded and they're not going to change that, you know, unless you're prying from their cold, dead fingers. So they're more likely to buy, you know, just a thing that just does the data piece of it that will connect to their current system. So there's a pretty clear split in the market between those two kind of kind of approaches. But, of course, all the growth happens, or much of the growth happens in, in, in that mid-tier. There's simply more mid-tier companies than there are giant enterprises by definition. So so that's where a lot of the – and in some ways, again, as an Evergage, it's easier for somebody who started out in the personalization or someplace in, as a cam, campaign engine of some sort to back into being a CDP by adding some additional data management capabilities. So a lot of the firms who are in that space really started out and backed into it in that way. Since we wrapped up that uh, segment with uh, talking about investors, um, you know, some of the hails, we want to do a quick hail and fail section uh, for this, our first um, episode of the season. So there was, you know, two of the, the hails, David, that you uh, pointed out for, uh, which are to do with funding in the privacy space or the safe media spaces. Super awesome out of the UK that raised $17 million for kids safe media and then security.ai for 
privacy technology that raised 50 million. Yeah, you know, it's it's good news. And then there was another report that said there was about 10 billion invested in overall privacy and security last year, up, um, you know, 10 or 11 percent over the year before, which in turn was up about 40 percent the year before that. So there is a lot of money flowing into this, you know, privacy tech space, which you know, for those of us who care about privacy, you know, we see that as a good thing. Uh, there, there is just this growing demand that it's only going to get to be more demand as the regulations get tighter. So we're just going to see more and more companies who are focusing on that. Interestingly, we now see this sort of a trend that people who have a technology that they might previously positioned it as, you know, an AI technology or something like that, now position it as a privacy technology. So it's like cool to be a privacy vendor which uh, I'm just so happy, and, you know, I'm going to start selling my tinfoil hats now online, I think. Absolutely. More funding for privacy is always a good thing and something to celebrate, of course. How it pans out as a sub-segment for MarTech is something we will help you keep tabs on on the Talking Stack. Please follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you prefer, and do not miss out on new episodes that we plan to publish every 10 days or so. For today, thanks for listening. We'll see you next. Enjoyed the talking stack? Show us some love by subscribing or reviewing us on SoundCloud, iTunes, as well as sharing this episode on social. Find more episodes on martechadvisor.com slash talking stack. Be sure to join us next time, and thanks for listening.